What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is Thursday, May 14th for me, May 15th for Olivia. (laughs) She is living in the future. (laughs) You're living in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Anything exciting happening in the future? Well, I don't know if it's really from the future, but it's exciting (laughs) that in Lithuania, we're number 18 on the true crime podcast chart. So that's exciting. I want to know who our Lithuanian fans are. I know. How message. did they find us? Maybe they've just got some big true crime fans there. So that's exciting. I feel like it's probably like one person. <laughs> I'll have to see if I can delve more into how many, you know, what their charts are actually like. Maybe there's some good podcasts on there that I've never heard of. Yeah. Um, to check it out. How are you going? Um, pretty good. I mean, the weather is finally getting nice here. It's going to be yep. like 80 degrees, mm. but makes quarantine a little bit better. <laughs> um, parts of, not to dwell on coronavirus or anything like that, I know we're all sick of it, but yeah. parts of New York are starting to open up again, but not where I live because I live in those problem areas. In the hot spot. Yeah, I feel like. I'll never get out of it. I did make a haircut appointment, though, but it's for the end of June, and my hair is still long. Like I'm honestly going to go rogue and just cut it off myself and absolutely regret it. I've booked in for the end of May, which and I haven't had my haircut since January, so that'll be exciting. I haven't had my haircut since November. That's it's so crazy. long. No, it's and I feel like, though, it's gone... When this was all happening, everyone was like, this is going to go on forever. But I feel like it's gone so quickly. I don't know why, if it's just been a blur or a, I don't know, it's strange. But I, f- I feel like it's gone really quick. I feel like looking back, it's gone fast. But yeah. like in the moment, it feels like it's going slow. But I feel like, like that saying, the days are long, but the years are short. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I feel like April like didn't even happen. I just no. remember my birthday, March, and then... It was pretty much the last weekend we could do anything, and here we are. Like, everyone's like, oh, like what did you do in March and April? Nothing. I don't know. Nothing. <laughs> Literally nothing. <laughs> My kids went back to school this week just one day a week, which was good, and they loved it. So next week is also one day, and then hopefully after that it will go back to full-time, fingers crossed, if all the numbers stay all right. We had a day this week where we had no new cases, which was the first time since sometime in February, so that was exciting. And our cases are still low in our state, probably between like two and seven usually per day. So anyway, hopefully the end is in sight for that, fingers crossed. Hopefully. Mm. The other exciting thing I think that happened this week is we had a visit in our group from Bill Roush. I don't know if – I'm sure most people – Bill (laughs) Roush? I was just going to say, if you don't know who he is, where have you been? But he – if you're familiar with the Maura Murray case, you will absolutely know Bill. Bill was Maura's boyfriend at the time she disappeared. Who's Maura Murray? Just kidding. <laughs> really? No, I'm joking. <laughs> Maura is probably, I would say she's the most well-known missing person case, do you think? Um, I think Maybe. the one that has... She'd be up there. Like a huge cult following. And she's had tons and tons of um, media. She's and it like been- never dies. No, and like so I know that there's an actual in- whole entire podcast, Missing Maura Murray, 
and there's another one called 107 Degrees. So like that's two whole podcasts where they, every episode was devoted to her disappearance. So there's been, I'm sure she's been on Disappeared, like there's books, there's, you know, it's just crazy the amount of stuff out there on her. So when she disappeared, she crashed her car in New Hampshire in 2004 and basically was never seen again. She was seen outside the car by some neighbours and then nobody knows what happened to her if she was abducted or if she wandered into the woods. There's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of other factors that contributed to her disappearance, which we won't go into because that will take up the whole episode, but it's all in the group if you want to have a look. But this week, Bill joined True Crime Society, which was so exciting for me. <laughs> um, and he spoke about that it was... What's the general like, consensus on him? Um, Bill is has never spoken much before. I think he may have done some interviews very early on when she went missing, but he literally hasn't spoken for probably over a decade on this case. So I'm not entirely sure why he has started speaking now, um, which I'll be interested to find out what comes from it. He said that in our group, he made a post and he said that it was Maura's 38th birthday last week. He spoke on a podcast and he also did an interview with True Crime Garage um, and that they've launched a new website called maurammurraymissing.org and they've got the hashtag findmora. So I know that Bill has been a bit controversial in terms of this case. Um, There's a lot of information online about some alleged legal incidents with him and I know James Renner who had his Maura Murray blog focused a lot on Bill. So it's interesting to see that he's finally coming out and speaking. And anyway, I am interested to see what comes from Bill's new public face. Hopefully something will. When Maura disappeared, for those who aren't familiar, there was her dorm room was packed, looks like it was packed up. There's been discussion about if it was packed up because she was leaving or if she hadn't unpacked from her break yet. But one of the things that was found in her dorm was an email um, between her and Bill where I think she accused him of cheating or there was talk of infidelity and things like that. So there was a bit of speculation that um, Maura was distraught about her relationship with Bill at the time she disappeared. And then there was also some weird phone records from Bill that he went off the grid around the time she disappeared. So people have always kind of speculated that he knows more about what happened to Maura. Um, I, I personally think she died in the elements and he maybe he does know more about her state of mind at the time. I, I don't think he really had anything to do with her disappearance and probable death, but this has been going on since 2004. He was very nice when he messaged me. That actually brings up another thing I want to talk about. I don't know if anyone else is big on Facebook like we are, but people have been so rowdy lately. And I feel like quarantine is making everyone go crazy because we have never gotten so many messages and so many people fighting and we block them. Like they will do something absurd. They will curse out everyone, set off all of our keyword alerts. We (laughs) mute them. Then they message us acting like we're like a store, like a corporation. And like (laughs) they're filing a complaint. And they're like, speak to the manager. That's literally it. They're like, do all the admins agree with this? Just so everyone knows also, we all talk constantly. All day we're talking. We all know what's happening. And I I also, my point is that we have 100 I think we're over 115,000 people now you know 114,990 don't have an issue it's just the occasionally you get some people who want to destroy the internet (laughs) some people what is the quote from Batman some people just want to watch the world burn (laughs) especially now when everyone has nothing else going on yeah so 
I've been kind of in a crime black hole for the last few days because I've been working really hard on the research for this episode and getting it all together. And apparently I've missed something huge because our group has been blowing up today about this missing kid named Dylan. We've had hundreds and hundreds of people joining from Nova Scotia in Canada for the case of Dylan Ella. He's a three-year-old who has been missing since May the 6th. So we're over a week now that he's been missing. I think we're like eight, eight or nine days when we're recording. I feel this. like it just suddenly blew up because I remember seeing oh, no, And I feel like it was there was no info and then all of a sudden, no. I don't know if it's, I don't, and maybe they have more media coverage there now or whatever and that's why everyone's coming. But he was last seen um, outside his grandmother's house in Truro playing and she went and did something with the dog. Like the dog escaped and she had to go and chain up the dog or something like that and he wandered away apparently his boots were found near a brook in the area so we've got on truecrimesociety.com lozzy's done a blog for us there's screenshots maps you know everything on there it's it's just weird the police are saying that foul play doesn't seem to be a factor but his family are doing some very very odd things and there's lots of rumors online about the family his mother was quoted as actually saying something along the lines of, he's so hyper, I can't handle him. I wish he'd just run away. Hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting. Like, and like on the blog, I'm just scrolling through now to see what we've got. There's some rumours um, that the, that CPS were involved, he, that for some reason all of his clothes were completely washed on the day of his disappearance, which doesn't sound like it was the norm for them. <laughs> and that the, there's also rumours that the family were having financial troubles. And I know they do have a GoFundMe at the moment, which I think is up around $15,000. Do you think they checked in the house? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if they didn't. So it's like that little girl this week, Athena, and there was a massive search, yeah. I think, in Washington for her helicopters and everything, and she was in her bed. It lasted like two hours of just <laughs> chaos because she's just this cute little blonde girl. Everyone was like, where is she? The dogs are out, the helicopters. And then finally, they said they found her at home in her bed. Yeah. I'm thinking surely he can't be in his home now after eight or nine days, but, you know, who knows really anymore. It does sound – and so what they've also done is they've got a mannequin, which this is a bit of a weird experiment, but they've got a mannequin and they put it in the brook or the river <laughs> to see kind of where it could float or – Who did this, the police or the family? I'm pre- No, it was the police, but it doesn't seem super scientific because I'm assuming that the conditions weren't the same. Maybe they were, I don't know. I actually learned in forensics that they will do stuff like that they'll, they'll, if they don't know – how something would have played out, they'll try to recreate it. Yeah. But that that's an interesting one. I wonder if they haven't – I know, I know Lozzie keeps saying that something else is going on. She's like, you know, people keep deleting things and posting them and then deleting. So I, I suspect Yeah, everyone who maybe- joined today is like not the family or anything, just people who have joined today are, are super rowdy about mm. this. I suspect that maybe the police also suspect that he didn't go to the brook by himself or he was never in the brook maybe so yeah so that's a sad one hopefully yeah we've had people are into that case like today on the blog alone I think we've had like 35,000 views just of that page so it's been up for less than 24 hours so oh my gosh I'm just actually looking now hold on let me have a look when I looked this afternoon it was 14 and then before we started recording it was like 34 that was 43,435 views at the moment oh my god so when I looked probably two hours ago, I think we're at 27. So we're getting 10,000 views an hour at this stage on that blog. So that's great for Lizzie and hopefully that means that something will come 
up in that case soon. All right. So today we're going to talk about the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman, who were Canadian and were very rich and died very mysteriously. I'm so into this case. I've always been into it. I like never really knew about it until... I remember I was a bit sad because when I started um, doing the research again for this, I remember at the time when it all happened, I'd been on their house listing because their house was for sale looking at all the photos and a lot of it's been taken down now. I wish I had a Yeah, I couldn't find (laughs) the pictures. I love looking at, you know, Mm. I'm just telling the others. We love looking at houses (laughs) that are involved in crimes. Crime scene houses. Like like if I see just, someone died, I look up where they live because then I want to see what it's like. <laughs> like I just like looking at houses for sale in general. Yep. But if there was a crime there, it makes it way more interesting. And I'm just like looking at the rooms like, oh, what happened in here? Yeah. Especially, you know, when the, we have the missing people found in the houses, I always look up the house to see if it's a haunted <laughs> like, house or what I can happen? see. <laughs> All right. Well, we've done a lot of chatting. People are probably going to be mad. So let's get into the episode. <laughs> He was the 15th richest person in Canada. She was a top philanthropist. Barry and Honey Sherman lauded as pillars of the community. Now murdered in their home, found side by side, strangled, bound to a railing next to their indoor pool. Both Honey and Barry Sherman were in fact targeted. But targeted by whom? He had a long list of business enemies. He said, they're out to get me. I'm surprised they haven't knocked me off already. Or could it be murder most personal? For somebody to go to their house and murder the both of them, it was personal. And was it a hatred that simmered for years? I probably had reasons to lash out, to to do the dirty deed. Did you kill Honey and Barry Sherman? On Friday, December... 15th, 2017, a gardener and housekeeper arrived at the North York residence on Old Colony Road of 75-year-old billionaire Barry Sherman and his wife, 70-year-old Honey, at 8.30 a.m. for their weekly visit. Thanks to a newly installed lockbox that had been set up for the realtor trying to sell the $7 million mansion, the two were able to let themselves in. They went about their business on the second and main floors of the 12,000-square-foot home. So this house is huge. I can't even picture what 12,000 square feet looks like. But to give you a better idea, the lower level consisted of an underground six-car garage, a recreation area, and an indoor swimming pool, while the rest of the home included five bedrooms, nine bathrooms, a gym, sauna, and outside there was a tennis court. So they were living the good life. Yeah. So neither the housekeeper nor the gardener saw either of the Shermans, but they didn't think much of it because they knew they weren't supposed to be home. It was a work day, Friday, right? Yep. So the house was for sale. A couple that was interested in buying the home arrived at 10.30 a.m. with their real estate agent for a tour. The home had been listed for sale by a Judy Gottlieb, but she was in Florida. Instead, the three met with another unnamed assistant agent who went on Judy's behalf. The group toured various floors and rooms of the expansive home, and after about a half hour, they reached the lower floor. The assistant agent led the group to one of the highlights of the home, the indoor swimming pool. It's very 80s when you look at the photos. <laughs> I know. It really is. I was like, eh. It looks like when you'd see it, like, a 
B-rated hotel. Yeah, I was going to say like a three-star hotel or something, you know, two-star hotel maybe even. It was in my basement. I wouldn't complain. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, in its heyday it would have been amazing, but it was dated. Yeah. Mm. That's like kind of out of place, but (laughs) there's other pictures of the house and we posted them on our group to say that we were going to do the podcast on them. And someone pointed out their TV because it was one of those like big fat TVs. And, like, if Not they're even a flat screen TV. They're, like, if they're billionaires, why do they have a TV from 1997? They seem to be quite frugal with some things. Like, you know, they, they weren't super showy. He drove an ordinary car and he didn't even have his own secretary but or also, anything like that. It was on the same floor as the pool and stuff. And there's only like the recreation room, the garage. Yeah. So it was probably part that they didn't really hang out in much. Yeah. So anyways, back to the, the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the assistant agent led the group to one of the highlights of the home, the indoor swimming pool. The assistant agent opened the door, expecting to wow the couple with the sight of the pool, but was faced with a gruesome discovery instead. The bodies of Honey and Barry Sherbin were hung with belts by their necks from the pool's railing. They were in seated positions with their backs to the pool. The agent quickly shut the door and ushered the group out, telling them that part of the home was currently off limits, which was a great save by him or her. (laughs) The agent went to find the housekeeper to tell them what happened, and she went to call Judy Gottlieb to ask her what to do. The housekeeper called 911 at 1143, and the Toronto police and paramedics were en route to the home within one minute. Here's a clip of Constable David Hopkinson from Toronto PD describing the scene and their initial thoughts from that night to reporters. It's a 911 call for a medical complaint. Uh, Three-tiered response, meaning police, fire, and ambulance show up. Uh, Our information was that there were two bodies discovered in a home here in the Bayview Avenue and Old Colony Road area. Uh, When we got inside, we have found two bodies deceased. They were pronounced by ambulance. Uh, The circumstances of their deaths appear suspicious. That sets off a certain investigative precedent, so we are now investigating. This is being investigated as suspicious, but if it is not suspicious, if this was an accidental death or, uh, you know, a medical, uh, a medical issue, uh, we would never release the names of the people involved here. Uh, that is for the family to release. Uh, we have officers that are blocking off the scene. We have officers that are searching the neighborhood maybe for security cameras, video, any kind of evidence that we might get. Um, I believe the coroner has attended. I believe the uh, pathologist, forensic pathologist, has has attended. Um, after that, now, I believe uh, we'll probably have the coroner come in to remove the bodies once the preliminary investigation is over inside the home. Uh, and then uh, we go from there. So the buyer's agent that was there with them described the event as scary, thinking it was a joke or leftover Halloween decorations. And if you remember, this is December, so those are really leftover decorations. (laughs) (laughs) The superstitious couple touring the home were angry and feared it was a sinister omen. I did read somewhere that I think this couple who were touring the house were Asian, so I can also understand especially, you know, the superstitious stuff. Yeah, Might like a, a cultural, cultural difference. Yeah. Also, though, but if you were trying to buy a house and you rocked up and there were two dead bodies, I think yeah. anyone would, would think that wasn't a great omen. Sinister <laughs> omen. Even though the assistant tried to keep them from seeing the bodies, the buyer's agent so the whole group saw through the large glass doors. The deaths were considered suspicious, and Toronto Police Service Homicide Squad took the lead in the investigation because they were, quote, most experienced in dealing with sudden, unexpected deaths. 
Dr. Michael Pickup conducted the autopsies and concluded the cause of death was ligature neck compression. Ligature strangulation is usually when someone is strangled by something other than their body weight. Yeah, so instead of like hanging from a door or something, they a belt or a rope around their neck or something like that. Right. It was also determined that Barry and Honey had been dead for at least a day. Rigor mortis, the stiffening of the muscles had passed and their limbs were relaxed and limp. There were injuries to their wrists and a biopsy was taken to determine if these were new or old injuries. That night, the Toronto police made two statements explaining there were no suspects being sought and there's no forced entry into the home. I wonder if they said, what, what did I always say? There's no risk to the public because oh, <laughs> I say every single case when they haven't caught anyone. <laughs> always. And like, I don't know. I feel like nothing ever happens to the public. But what if? I know. How, how, like, I just don't understand how they can say that in all these cases. Like Libby and Abby in Delphi, Maggie Long, all these cases are still unsolved. So yeah. that's my bugbear. I hate when they say that. All right. Well, here's a clip of the police saying just that. homicide detectives were at the scene as well but only to assist officers in their investigation and while they wouldn't call either death a murder homicide detective brandon price did try to ease the fears of neighbors that a killer may be on the loose i can say that at this point uh, in the investigation though it is very early um, we uh, are not currently uh, seeking or uh, looking for an outstanding suspect On December 16th, police sources told the Toronto Star that they were, quote, probing the possibility that they were a murder-suicide, end quote, believing Barry killed Honey before taking his own life. Friends and family of the couple were adamant this wasn't the case, noting the house had nine entrances and both Barry and Honey would have let anyone in who asked for help, no matter the time of day, even if they were a stranger. Their children issued a statement urging the police to conduct a thorough criminal investigation and chastised them for making their murder-suicide theory public. The Sherman family was certain Barry and Honey were murdered. But who were Honey and Barry Sherman, and why would anyone want either of them dead? So I'm just going to put a note here that a lot of this background information comes from a very in-depth piece on McLean's by Ann Kingston and Michael Friscalanti. They did a ton of research into the Shermans and Apotex. I'm only going to hit on some of it but if you're interested in going down a really deep rabbit hole about their lives and companies we'll link that article on our website and with any other sources that we use bear sherman was the founder and ceo of apotex inc canada's largest generic drug distributor in his lifetime he amassed an estimated net worth of 4.6 billion dollars making him one of the wealthiest men in canada Some reports say he was the 12th wealthiest, while some say the 15th. Mm. Either one sounds fine to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) By 2016, Apotex employed over 10,000 people with over 300 products selling in over 115 countries. Their revenue was about $1.19 billion annually. Launched in 1974, the company was in a constant battle against big pharma, government regulators, and anyone who questioned Barry's intentions. <laughs> he thought of himself as a patent-busting underdog, bravely suing the Merck's, Pfizer's, and Bears of the world, so he could provide patients with affordable generic medication. He once claimed, if we're thieves, we're Robin Hoods. Winning in court was so crucial to his success that he liked to tell employees they worked for a legal company that happened to sell medications. <laughs> here's an interview with, here's an interview with Ann Kingston, co-wrote 
the McLean's piece that we got a lot of this information from. Um, you really talk about the paradoxes of this man. And, uh, you know, you, you start off the article by saying, uh, by showing some of the people who he helped, which included someone who defrauded him. He paid his bail. Yes. Barry Sherman was a very complex man. And I think the public, you know, face we have now is only part of the picture. And yes, the story does begin with the kind of an amazing saga, decades old, where Barry Sherman bailed out somebody from an Oregon prison, a Toronto mm -hmm. stockbroker, who had defrauded him in order for him to somehow recoup the money that had been lost. Mm -hmm. Very complicated, but a glimpse into the fact that he crossed paths with a lot of different people. So he amassed a long list of enemies over his 50-year mm -hmm. career, you wrote. Um, he also admitted at one time that maybe he would be the target of murder. This was several decades ago, in fact, and it was said his friends now look back at that quote saying that he might be a target because mm -hmm. of the various, we go into them in the story, but yes, um, that he was being sardonic, that was his dry wit in saying that, but the fact is that it was well known that he had amassed, he was a very combative, aggressive businessman, famously litigious, and he amassed a lot of enemies in, in doing so. And it wasn't just the drug business, I mean, he was involved in a, in a failed attempt to get a casino. Um, therapeutic pads for horseshoes, yes. um, a, a bankrupt jewelry company, uh, a, a yacht named the Great Gatsby. Like there was a <laughs> that long didn't list. exist, in fact. Right. So a long <laughs> list of business ventures. Well, I think that's one of the things the story doesn't, you know, un sort of uncover, mm -hmm. and also points to the difficulty that police investigators will have as they try to figure out it, the complicated web of his life. His business dealings were incredibly complex. Outside Apotex, the mm -hmm. generic drug company founded. He also invested in a myriad of bizarre, like out-and-out -out odd investments that again brought him into proximity with a cast of characters we're sort of saying is out of a Coen Brothers movie. Very you know, known fraudsters mm -hmm. and so forth. In federal court alone, Apotex had launched more than 1,200 legal actions, including 83 against Health Canada since 1990. A ministry spokesperson said, because of the high volume of cases, officials can't even begin to calculate how many millions Barry's litigations had cost Canadian taxpayers. <laughs> <laughs> the 83 actions against Health Canada stemmed from a 30-year dispute over a knockoff of the drug Trazodone. In April 2017, Barry came out on top when the Federal Court of Appeals ruled in his favor. Bruce Clark, Apotex's former senior vice president of scientific and regulatory affairs, told McLean's, quote, for Barry, it wasn't about the money. Money is just how you keep score. From that alone, it's easy to see how Barry could have made some enemies selling cheaper generic drugs and fighting against the larger brand name companies. Probably pissed some of them off. To add to that, Barry often found himself working with criminals who took advantage of his wealth and kindness. Outside of Apotex, Barry personally invested in multiple businesses, which often turned out to be fraudulent schemes. And they hinted at some of them in that clip that we just played. Yeah. You wonder how he managed to keep all his money if he wasn't a great businessman. And I guess when you're maybe that lucky. rich, like, who cares? Yeah. Barry's associates felt he was too generous and trusting. An unidentified longtime friend told McLean's, he always saw the best in people, which wasn't a great thing all the time. Some of the fraudulent investments include a stake in a yacht chartering company that never bought any yachts, a majority stake in a company that sold nutritional supplements marketed by the infamous Kevin Trudeau, 
who Wikipedia describes as an American fraudster, author, salesman, and pool enthusiast. Wow, very varied interests. <laughs> I'm also a pool enthusiast, I think. <laughs> in 1996, U.S. regulators began investigating Kevin Trudeau for fraud, which led to his arrest, prompting Barry to sell half his stake in the company to Apotex. Barry also partnered with Frank D'Angelo, a fruit juice maker, for 15 years. Frank was trying to expand his business at Barry's expense. The two created Cheetah Power Surge energy drink and started Steelback Brewery. But D'Angelo Brands went bankrupt in 2007, causing Barry to lose $100 million, which is probably pocket change to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D'Angelo was also arrested in 2009 on sexual assault and obstruction of justice charges. Regardless, Barry continued backing D'Angelo's next venture in filmmaking. Financing all eight of his obscure films, including Real Gangsters, exclamation point, <laughs> and Sicilian Vampire. He's very um, niche, isn't he? <laughs> so then Barry partnered with another man convicted of fraud named Sean Rutenberry. He convinced Barry to invest in his development of an online trivia game, which never happened, and led Barry to sue Rutenberry for allegedly just pocketing all the money. To add to the long list of scams and lawsuits, 11 months before Barry's death, Apotex fired and then sued, sorry if I messed this name up, Mulazin Hussein, a chemist who allegedly stole millions of dollars worth of drug formulations in hopes of building a rival factory in Pakistan. Six months later, Apotex was slapped with corporate espionage accusations by Tiva Pharmaceutical Industries, the world's largest generic drug maker. In the lawsuit, Tiva claims one of its former employees was in a romantic relation with Apotex CEO Jeremy Desai. Desai, yeah, I think that's how you say it. And leaked information to him. Both Apotex and Jeremy Desai denied these allegations. And it should also be noted that Jeremy abruptly resigned six weeks after Barry and Honey's deaths. Another battle that many people believe may be relevant to Barry's death involved his cousins. Carrie Winter specifically is the showrunner of them, and he had three siblings. They were sometimes referred to as the Winter Cousins. <laughs> the issue goes back as far as the 1960s. The Winter Cousins lost their parents at a young age, and their father, Louis Winter, was a pioneer in the generic pharmaceutical business. When Barry was young, he worked for and was mentored by his uncle Lou at his business, Empire Laboratories. When his uncle passed away, Barry ended up eventually buying and selling Empire Laboratories. Led by Kerry Winter, the cousins alleged in a series of court proceedings that began in the 1990s that Barry owed a financial duty to his four cousins, which translated to one-fifth of his estimated $5 billion wealth, which would be $1 billion for those bad at math, like me. <laughs> they said part of the purchase deal that Barry agreed to said they, too, deserve some of the money. But Barry's lawyers countered because the option had never taken effect. It stipulated that the cousins must have been 21 at the time and have worked for Empire, and neither of those conditions were met. So sucks for them. Yeah. <laughs> the Winter Cousins lost their case plenty of times, including one not long before the murders of Barry and Honey, which made many people suspicious. Carrie Winter didn't help their suspicions by admitting that he fantasized about murdering Barry. <laughs> it's very convenient, isn't it? Yeah. So this is... <laughs> Carrie Winter did this crazy interview with Bob McLean of the Fifth Estate, where he says that he wanted to hurt Barry, that he alleges that 
Barry had asked him to murder Honey years ago, so Barry could have killed Honey himself. Um, the Fifth Estate also ended up giving him a lie detector test that he failed. Um, this is, I'll just play a clip for it. I was betrayed. My cousin hurt me. <laughs> and now I want to hurt him. Police have determined Barry and Honey Sherman were both victims of a targeted homicide. But now Carrie Winter insists, without evidence, that Barry could have killed his wife. Because Winter claims in the late 1990s, Barry Sherman asked him to arrange a contract hit on her. There was a time in his office that he turned to me and he said, Carrie, I want you to do me a favor. And I said, what's that, Barry? He said, I want you to whack my wife. And I said, come on, Barry. You want me to kill your wife? He goes, I didn't say you. You know some people. Could you arrange that for me? What do you believe members of the family and their legal representatives yes. will say about this? I think they would say that he's uh, possibly lying. He's trying to uh, drag Barry's good name through the mud. He's got a hidden agenda. Um, he's got a vendetta. He just sounds he's being spiteful, vengeful. Yeah, he just sounds crazy. His claim is unsubstantiated. So we put Carrie Winter through a three-hour lie detector test administered by John Galeanos, a former Quebec homicide investigator and a veteran polygraph examiner. Are you lying when you say that Barry Sherman told you that you wanted his wife killed? No. Carrie Winter failed. There's something that you're hiding in. There's so something I failed. That, yeah, you failed. Yeah, you failed. Winter seemed shaken. All of which begs another question. Could Carrie Winter have murdered the man he readily admits he hated so much? I probably had reasons to lash out, to, uh, to do the dirty deed. This would be asked of you by anybody. Did you kill Honey and Barry Sherman? Absolutely not. I had nothing to do with it. I don't know who did it. Toronto police have asked him to come in for an interview. Winter says they told him he is not a suspect and that there is no evidence he is. So... Carrie then did a follow-up phone interview with Post Media's Joe Warmington to defend his innocence. It's, it's more to the story than meets the eye. Let's put it that way. Tell you, man, Carrie, in my whole career, I've never seen anything like what you said today in those interviews. And I, you know, I, I'm taking you at, you know, at face value or whatever. But my God, that was. Uh... No, I did a lie detector test, Joe. Don't worry. I have witnesses that were tested at that time. I went to my post them shaking my boots, believing I couldn't say no because Barry was helping me out financially. This, this idea that Barry never asked me, it's laughable. That's all I'm going to say, Joe. It's laughable. Barry didn't love honey. Maybe he patched things up within the last 10 years that I didn't see him, but I don't think so. Just before you go, because I know you're going into your site there, the, uh, the I asked you in the email the questions there. Just quickly, the... I don't see any reason why the Sherman children are afraid of me. I think that some of the children have expressed this idea that I'm responsible for the demise of their parents. I think that's all craziness. I would never, ever bring harm to those children. I would never bring harm to anybody. I'm a recovering addict, six years sober, buddy. I believe in the Lord. I'm not an evil person. I have nothing to do with Honey and Barry's death. This is all laughable. And, you know, they're all out to portray me as some crazy man. All I said was, look, it was a murder-suicide. I kept my mouth shut. It was a murder-suicide. I kept my mouth shut. Brian Greenspan starts spinning this yarn. I'm not going to keep my mouth shut anymore. The idea that Barry could never harm a hair on her head, Joe, it's not true. Barry hated 
what I'm trying to tell you, because I said it and I'll say it again. Barry killed her and committed suicide. That's my belief. It will never change. The only way it's going to change is someone admits to doing it. Uh, apparently you were in the house about 12 years ago. Uh, did never, you forget that? Never stepped foot in Old Colony. Never stepped foot in Old Colony. Ever in my life. Okay. <laughs> so this entire battle with the Winters came to an end after Barry's death in March of this year, when Carrie Winter lost their bid to have Candace's highest court hear their final appeal. Carrie said he was, quote, disappointed with the results. I feel like him having to pay the, what was it, $8 million court yeah. fees to Barry was such a burn. Oh, no. Like, that would be a lot to him, probably, and there'd be nothing to Barry. Yeah, right? Like, Barry doesn't need the money. <laughs> but what's right is right. So all this background information is only skimming the surface of everything, like I said before. There's tons that went on with Apotex and Barry before his death. You can believe it. There's political scandals. There's more lawsuits. There's probably anything you could think of. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into all of it, but I did want to give a picture of why Barry could have enemies and what his life was like, really, and why would someone want to kill him. So you're probably wondering what Honey was doing during all this time. She was very big on the charity front. They were big philanthropists, and it should be noted they donated tons and tons of money to hospitals, universities, and tons of different organizations. Honey was a board member for many of these charities, and she focused a lot of her time there. People said about her that she was an amazing, sweet person, and she would light up a room when she came in, which is one of those cliches that people say, but I believe it. Yeah. Honey was also designing their extravagant new home that they would be moving into, but they never did move into. The home included plans for a luggage room, which is, yes, specifically <laughs> a room for luggage, which I know I wonder how you're very interested in. To include a luggage room in your house plans. <laughs> I have my luggage sitting next to me right now in this tiny room I'm recording in. Just like cramming it takes the up so much room as well. A luggage room is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and by luggage, I mean one suitcase. <laughs> Was this house ever built like all the way? I don't think so, to be I feel honest. Like it I know must not have it, been. they demolished, like they'd cleared the land and um, were ready to build. I don't know. I'm just have a look now and see I if I can see what I don't like specifically said. I'll just Google. Yeah, it says would have built. So I'm assuming that this is probably part of their estate now, the mm. land. So as far as I know, no, I don't think it was ever built. It sounds like it was nearing completion of the planning like stage plans. when they died. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, this amazing house was never built and they never got to see it. So after their deaths, the Sherman children were determined to prove their parents were murdered and that this was not a murder-suicide, as police suggested. They contacted Toronto criminal lawyer Brian Greenspan to retain a private investigator to look into the deaths. He hired Tom Klett, a retired Toronto police detective who has worked in homicide, drug, and intelligence bureaus. Together, they assembled a team of private investigators that consisted of former homicide detectives. The family also hired Dr. David Chazon. I think that's how you say it, yeah. It's my best guess. <laughs> the retired chief forensic pathologist for Ontario to conduct another autopsy. Have you ever seen a case where they had a team of private investigators? I feel like I haven't. 
It sounds like it's a novel, um, you know, like it, like I, I'm sure it has happened. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but, you know, it sounds like this is what you do. There's some series of books, I think it might be by Kathy Rikes or Reach, I don't know how you say her name, but they have like a murder club where a group of private investigators get together each month to discuss and try and solve cases. That's what they sound. Sounds, sounds like our Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> the funerals for Barry and Honey were scheduled for Thursday, December 21st. That Wednesday, Dr. Chaza conducted his own, opto- his own autopsy in the presence of three private investigators and Dr. Michael Pickup, who conducted the initial autopsy. Dr. Pickup supplied him with the crime scene photos and photos of the bodies before they were autopsied. The photo showed markings on the couple's wrists that had been made by some type of ligature, leading Chazon to believe their wrists and hands had been bound before they died. Even though samples were sent for biopsy, the photos indicated to him that the wounds were recent. Whether the belts found around their necks were what was used to kill them is up for debate. Some sources say the belts were tightened around the couple's necks to strangle them, while others say the couple was strangled with something else and the belts were placed around their necks to pose the bodies. I'd love to read these autopsy reports. I know we won't probably ever be able to or not able to for a long time, but I would love to read them. Yeah. It'd be so fascinating. It seems like there's so not like misinformation, but just little differences like that and you don't know what the real answer is. And I guess part of that comes from them saying originally that it was a murder-suicide versus what it was, which was a double homicide. So Private investigators determined this was a homicide. Someone close to the team stated, photographs of both the scene and autopsy, certain things struck all of them collectively and led them to the conclusion that this was a double murder. So here's a clip from CBS News going over the details the private investigation team uncovered. So the private investigators believe the couple was murdered by multiple killers. Now, this does contradict a theory that was widely spread that the Shermans died as a result of a murder-suicide. And this is a theory that family and friends of the Shermans have rejected strongly. We also heard that the from our source that the bodies of the Shermans were found in an upright, seated position on the floor near an indoor pool. We know previously that they were found in the basement of their Toronto house. And the private investigators found evidence that both had their necks wrapped with leather belts, that they were knotted around a handrail that's adjacent to the pool, and that there was evidence that their wrists were bound together at one point. Now, our sources say that there was no rope or material that could have been used to tie their wrists together that was found. So that's the source with direct knowledge of the private investigator's report. We also know the private investigators believe that the couple was killed on December the 13th. That's two days before they were found. And that information is based on the fact that Honey Sherman was found wearing the same clothes that she was last seen in. The private investigators, according to our source, also believe that Honey struggled with her killer or killers. She had cuts on her face and she was potentially lying face down before moved and bound upright to the handrail. So that's the information that we're getting from our source. At the funeral, over 7,000 mourners, including Canadian Prime Minister and hottie per Olivia, Justin Trudeau, attended. Jonathan Sherman, the couple's son, spoke at the service, saying, As my sisters and I congregated for two days, waiting to hear any facts other than through Twitter and the unreliable news media, I kept expecting my parents to walk through the front door and say, 
Everything will be fine. We've taken control of the situation. These past few days have been a shocking adjustment to our reality. He spoke about his family as a six-pack and reminisced about their childhood vacation, holiday dinners, and playtimes with new grandchildren. He said, Our parents never left anyone behind. They were taken from us. Six weeks after their deaths, police finally announced that the death he and Barry were being investigated as a double murder. Finally. Finally. <laughs> right? Like, it's just crazy to me that that was their first guess, murder-suicide. Like, what murder-suicide are they posing bodies? It's so yeah. weird. I know, it is strange. Homicide Detective Sergeant Susan Gomez said, We believe now, through the six-week work review, we have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide investigation and that both Barry and Honey Sherman were, in fact, targeted. Here are some clips of Susan Gomez speaking at that press conference. We believe now, through the six weeks of work review, we have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide investigation and that both Honey and Barry Sherman were in fact targeted. We will continue to focus exclusively on evidence with whatever resources are necessary. We ask anyone to come forward with anything they may think is valuable to the investigation, and we, along with the family, are grateful for all those that have done so thus far. Thank you. People in the community were concerned about their own safety. Are you saying that people have no reason to be worried that these people were specifically targeted? And no one else is at any risk. I'm saying that the Shermans were targeted in this event. How important is that list of people that gained entry through the lockbox? People that went to look at this home that was for sale. Can you speak to that? Anybody who's had access to that home in the last so many weeks and months leading up to that weekend and that day, those days, important to us, absolutely. Are those people being looked at specifically? You must have a list of all the people that entered that home from the realtor. We have a significant list of people that we're speaking to. It was determined the last day the Shermans were seen or heard from was December 13th, two days before their bodies were found. Honey left the Apotex building before Barry around 5 p.m. In an interesting note, Honey had missed a meeting with Baycrest Center Foundation the day before. She had not told anyone she was unable to make the meeting, which was unlike her. When she was reached by email, she said she was dealing with some other stuff. Makes you wonder what that mm. stuff could have been. I, I find out. Interesting that if that was, you know, because I've seen it quoted that she actually said dealing with some stuff. So it's interesting that she would phrase it like that. Stuff to me does sound, if, if that is, you know, how it was phrased, stuff like purposely does sound vague. Personal. Yeah. And personal, like, you know, yeah, I don't know. I like, wouldn't. Yeah. Like if it like wasn't that. personal, you would just say it. Yeah. There's a lot of just weird little things like that that make you wonder in the story. And it doesn't sound like she was, um, you know, the type to miss things like that with no warning. So you'd have to wonder mm -hmm. what was going on. So Honey had been planning to leave her vacation in Miami in a few days, and Barry was due to meet her a week later. Barry sent some emails that evening from his Apotex account. His final email was sent between 6.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. that night. The email is said to have been a routine business email related to drugs at Apotex, business as usual. It's interesting to me as well that when I was trying to find out about this that they don't know, maybe it just hasn't been released, but that it's weird that his final email was sent in a two-hour time period. Surely they should know. Maybe it's just not made public, but I'm sure that that is one of the easiest things to find out. Yeah, like it's literally timestamps. And I guess, you know, if they are thinking they died that night, 
that would make a big difference. Is it 6.30 or is it 8.30? So, Well, you would think the surveillance will come up later, but if they had surveillance, you'd think they would know around when he left too. Yeah, you'd think so. I, I suspect a lot of this just isn't public and people are just kind of mm-hmm. deducing based on, you know, witness accounts or... As we go on, it seems like a lot of the information that is out is pretty much only because of investigative journalism. Yep. The star has done a lot of work on this case, which is lucky for us. <laughs> yep. Kevin Donovan from the star. <laughs> All right. So nobody in the company heard from Barry that night, which was slightly unusual as he often sent emails at all hours of the night and early morning due to trouble sleeping. Should have just taken some sleeping pills. <laughs> you would have had plenty of those available. Because <laughs> I take, I think you guys call it Unisom. It's called re- uh, Rest of It here, yeah. which is the same thing. And when you get the generic version, that is Apotex here. Really? Yeah. See, I've never noticed. Um, I'm going to have to start looking and see. That's the only drug I've ever noticed here that's Apotex. I haven't looked at many, to be honest, but I just noticed and put the two and two I together. I have two generic drugs right now. I'll check them after this. <laughs> Next day, on Thursday, December 14th, Barry did not arrive at the office. This did not raise alarm at the time because he had nobody to report to. He was the boss. He didn't have a personal assistant. So his movements were solely up to him. It blows my mind that someone who ran a four, you know, multi-billion dollar company had no personal assistant. That's crazy. Like I know people in much lesser positions who can't live without their PA. So I didn't include this in the podcast but i saw it had to do with like all the legal stuff but he was asked once where the money came from to pay for something in a deposition and he straight up said he had no idea what account what this what that it came from he just tells his staff that it needs to be paid for and it gets paid for i'm assuming he had a team surely of accountants or you know money people even if he didn't have his own secretary There's no public information about anyone hearing from Barry or Honey on Thursday, December 14th. As they led such busy lives, friends and family say it wasn't unusual for them to not be in contact daily. In the days and weeks following their deaths, the Star uncovered more details related to the investigation. They reported that Honey's cell phone was found in a rarely used bathroom of the home, suggesting she may have tried to hide and call for help, but was found and overpowered by the killer or killers. Barry's gloves and paperwork were left on the floor outside of the garage on the way to the indoor swimming pool. While police said there was no forced entry into the home, the star noted a window had been left open allowing a recently painted room to air out, and that a basement door was unlocked. The Shermans frequently left this door unlocked, which could have been known by the killer. So this is kind of a weird Hmm. thing. Fascinating to me, this part. Yeah, you have to wonder if it... It's just a coincidence or not. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Barry and Honey's bodies were posed similarly to a set of sculptures found on the same floor. The picture is on our blog. If you guys want to check it out, you can just Google it. The sculptures are two life-sized people sitting with their legs crossed that the Shermans placed on a pair of speakers that they had on the same floor as the swimming pool. The statues, they're pretty creepy looking. <laughs> it looks like they're maybe made out of trash. They are. I read they were made out of junk. So, so yeah, trash. trash. <laughs> yeah. One of the Sherman children was even quoted saying, we all hated those things. They are very creepy. 
I I like I wouldn't even want them. No. The pieces were given to the Sherman by friends. I guess if your friends give them to you, you have to keep them. <laughs> They're gonna like come over and be like, oh, where are those sculptures? <laughs> pieces were given to the Shermans by friends years ago and have been on display in their home since 1985. According to the police, the Shermans' bodies were found in semi-seated positions with belts fastened around their neck tied to a low railing by the indoor swimming pool. Through the Star's investigation, they learned that Barry's right leg was crossed over his left when his body was discovered, similarly to the male statue. It's unclear if police came to any conclusions about the similarities, but do you think it's a coincidence? I don't know. I I can't decide if it is a coincidence or if you know, it is related. The one thing I do find interesting is that the house was for sale and the photos of the sculptures were up on the real estate ad online. So people could see them, you know, if anyone was just looking, you know, at their house details. So it's not like nobody knew about them. I'm sure plenty of people did see them. Hmm. And the other thing I think is that's interesting about the sculptures is that Barry was found posed like the male sculpture, but Honey I think her legs were positioned slightly differently. It looks like her legs were in front of her. Yeah, and the the female sculpture's legs are kind of hanging down over the speaker. But again, is does that mean something about the crime? Did they pose Barry like that because he was the target, like the actual target, and Honey was kind of just a secondary damage? Yeah. So no, like I, it's one of those things. I, I, I know. Would it be creepy if the statues were smaller? Who knows? Like as creepy? I don't think it would be. I think it's just because these are so big and ugly, imposing and ugly. Yeah, like um, and I guess the other thing is I'm sure that there are other places in the house where they could have been murdered or the, the hanging could have been staged. So why did they do it so they were sitting down? I guess it's easier so you don't have to hold them up or prop them up or anything like that, but... I don't know. I I find it very, very interesting anyway. What do you think? Well, just off of what you were saying, it makes you wonder if they were placed like where the indoor pool is out of convenience. Like they just happened to be in that area when this person came. Or if, like you said, it was they looked at the pictures online, like their house was for sale. They could see the listing. They could see photos. Did they plan this ahead? Why would they choose the indoor pool? Yeah. Like it looks like, you know, it was, I don't know, the pool is probably heated, I'm sure, too. But um, <laughs> from the photos, it looks like it was all covered up and they weren't planning on using it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I do find it interesting, sorry, as an aside, too, that for billionaires and for someone who seemingly had so many enemies, that they had no security in their house, really. Right. That we know of, no CCTV from in the house. The doors are unlocked. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they were super security conscious. Guess that it'll never happen to me. Complex. Yeah, yeah. and I guess they did. Le- that I guess maybe they thought their kind of low key lifestyle. You know, they weren't super flashy, mm-hmm. which might have made them a lesser target in terms of like you know they didn't drive around in super flashy cars or yep. anything like that where someone would follow them and do that. So. So, yeah, it's unclear if the police had any conclusions about the statues. Maybe we'll find out one day, but right now we don't know. Kevin Donovan, the star's chief investigative reporter, said, quote, I have no idea what the police or the private investigators have come up with related to these photos. I've asked the police and they've said they can't comment on anything in an active and ongoing investigation. 
which is what all police say all the time. Yeah. <laughs> October 26, 2018, the Sherman family offered a $10 million reward for information leading to the apprehension and prosecution of the killer or killers at a press conference held with their attorney, Brian Greenspan. In December 2018, details of the search for Honey Sherman's will were made public at this time. It turns out, in the weeks following their deaths, the whereabouts of her will were unknown. It wasn't found during the police searches, and none of the officials who had been appointed to manage the Sherman's estate knew where it was. Sherman's estate lawyer, Timothy Uden, said at a court hearing in July, we don't know who the beneficiaries are. If there is a will, we don't know if there is no will. Uden had to file a document asking for appointment of a state trustee without a will in the estate of Honey Sherman. Another thing that has to do with the estate... The Sherman family said they feared kidnapping and violence, and they were granted a court order which completely sealed all the information on the family estate, including the amount and distribution of the assets. A two-year blanket seal was issued to protect the privacy and dignity of the whole family and to protect them from possibly being targeted from the same killers. So a lot of the information we're wondering about is sealed. And I, I also don't know if we will find out if they ever found Honey's will. I'm assuming they probably did because surely, you know, that would exist. But that would be under the sealed information at the moment. But maybe in the summer they will unseal it because in relation to the sealing of the Sherman's estate, there is meant to be a hearing in March of this year, 2020, to apply to have the seal extended. The original seal is due to expire in summer 2020. This case will now be here in July in October 2020, pending COVID-19 restrictions. And I know that there are a lot of journalists and people out there trying to fight it and trying to get the records unsealed for public information. Be very interested to see what happens with that. Yeah. Even though the estate files were sealed, the star man should get some of the information. Barry appears to have had both a primary and secondary will. This is common in Ontario for people who own a private business. The primary will includes real estate, vehicles, and similar holdings which must go to probate. An estate admin tax must be paid to the government on these holdings. Secondary wills typically cover shares in private companies. There's no estate tax to be paid. The order in which the couple died could also complicate matters relating to the estate. In Barry's will, he specified that if he died first, everything would go to Honey. Even if they died within minutes of each other, Barry died first, legally his estate would flow to Honey. Her lack of will complicates how the estate would be dealt with ongoing, which is one of those things you never really think about, but it's pretty interesting. Their state lawyer, Timothy Uden, admitted that no one knows the order in which Barry and Honey died. I get, like, I, I also find it super interesting, and I never thought about it either. If one person died a few minutes before the other legally, it still goes to that person before anyone else. But if they don't know, how can you ever even... Like, where, where do you go from here with that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if they can, I don't think they can determine or haven't determined their causes of death down to, you know, she died at 6.50 and he died at 6.55 or whatever. They haven't mm -hmm. determined it that closely. They've just said they, I think they died at the same, you know, the same night. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, it seems kind of a moot point. Why, why yeah, are they even discussing it? Like. You can discuss it all you want, but you're not going to have an outcome from it unless maybe that's something that they're working to try and Because you have those establish. damn winter cousins trying to steal the money. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of Honey's actually came forward to the star and told them that 
in November 2017, Honey said she had updated her will at a lawyer's office. So that was about a month before they died. Yeah. This friend told the star, Honey and I were talking and she said, meet me at Young and St. Clair Avenue. She said she was just coming from her lawyer's office and she had just updated her will. She had done some adjustments. Honey said she wanted me to first go with her to Loblaws to get these frozen croissants from Ace Bakery that she liked. Then we would go to her home. It's all very specific. Like there's a, there's a location, there's, you know. A snack. <laughs> so that makes me wonder, maybe this isn't 100% true, but then it could also be the other way. Maybe she really did remember exactly yeah. what happened on the day. The exact day of the conversation about the will is unknown, but the source said it was around November. It was around the November 13th birth of the Sherman's third grandchild. The source said Honey often stressed the importance of having a will and making sure everything is protected. And that part was in quotes. <laughs> it's um, also interesting to me that if the source said meet, meet me at Young and St. Clair, that that would have been right around where Honey went to the attorney or the lawyer. So surely they could have, even if they didn't know, which I find that hard to believe, but even if they didn't know what lawyer she was using, they could have you tracked could narrow it, down. it down. Yeah, I'm sure you could, you know, make a few calls. And the thing is, any lawyer would see this in the media. Surely they would come forward and You'd say like, that oh, they I had a it. copy of the will. Yeah. yeah. We got our will done and the lawyer keeps like, you know, the lawyer holds the stuff for you. So mm-hmm. I'm sure in a case this big, someone surely would have come forward if there was a will, which I, there surely had to be. They couldn't have been that stupid. Maybe we'll find out one day. <laughs> Hopefully when they unseal them. <laughs> Honey didn't mention to the source what changes she was making to the will. Speculation is that she added her new grandchild as a beneficiary. A nice grandma. Yes. <laughs> Barry had allegedly been planning to give Honey a significant amount of money at the time as much as $500 million. Honey's sister, Mary... Schechtman? Mary Schechtman has come out and said that some of the money was earmarked for her. She and Honey had been best friends, and Mary assisted with some of the Sherman's real estate projects. It's interesting to me that she's coming out and saying that publicly. Like, yeah. why... That, that money was definitely for me. That was coming to me, that money. You know, it's like she's staking her claim, which I found a bit shady, but... Yeah, like, why insert yourself? And, like, if she's Honey's best friend, as she said in the interview, wouldn't you want to, like, protect their privacy or keep these matters private? Yeah, some people just want attention. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot of people like that in this case. (laughs) (laughs) So this friend hasn't been identified publicly in the media, but the star did confirm that the source had known Honey for years. I have read when I was researching, sorry to interrupt, I read that when I was researching that the person was actually a service provider for Honey. So I'm assuming it was someone who helped her in the household Mm. or even maybe like a personal service provider, like a maybe a hairstylist or a physio or something like that. So they Mm. they had she had worked and known Honey for a long time. The source said they reached out to police immediately after the murder, but police did not respond for six weeks. And if you remember... It took them six weeks to decide that this was a homicide and not a murder-suicide. On January 26, 2018, when police announced that the deaths were a targeted double homicide, a homicide detective came and interviewed the friend for two hours. (laughs) She said she was asked questions by the police as to whether Honey had any visible marks on her body. The answer was no. The source also recalled an odd event that happened on December 9, 2017, 
just days before the Shermans were murdered. Oh, yeah, this is weird. Hmm. A realtor came in and explained a prospective buyer wanted to view the property via FaceTime. The realtor gave a tour over the phone, and Honey even waved to the camera at one point. The source said this was odd, as the person viewing the property would not show their face and was asking questions via text instead of just speaking. So that's definitely not normal. You also think that that... So was Judy the realtor who came and gave this FaceTime to her? I'm assuming it probably was, or one of Mm -hmm. Judy's assistants, but surely there would be some way to track who this person was. Yeah, like their phone It's very, very strange if that's true. Um, And, yeah, I would love to know, well, I guess, what, December 9, so literally a week before they were murdered. Yeah, so weird. I, I could kind of understand maybe the asking questions via text message, maybe if it was someone who was a foreign buyer maybe they weren't comfortable speaking English but it's true still the whole not show your face thing yeah it's very strange very catfishy mm. get Neve on the case <laughs> <laughs> he would solve it <laughs> so the homicide detective also apparently asked the friend at the end of their interview who do you think did it and the friend replied with that's your job <laughs> wow I feel like I would get into it and be like, well, in my opinion. (laughs) In March 2019, the Sherman children filed an application to have the home demolished. The family statement noted the house contained bad memories and stigma. And because of the crime, the home had become impossible to sell. If I had $7 million, I'd buy it. (laughs) Without it being demolished. (laughs) Love a good murder house. (laughs) Maybe you get a good discount. friend of the family, Eric Kirschenblatt, spoke to City News about the house being demolished. Basically, it was, it was one of the family members spoke to some of the neighbors and said that, you know, we're looking to take it down. And everyone is relieved because right now it's, it's a, a vacant structure that, you know, has some bad, you know, memories. We're looking to go in as soon as possible. We'll start. We're, we're waiting for stakeouts. We'll get the, the hoarding erected and then we'll go in and, and take it down. And I figure, weather permitting, we could be, you know, three weeks a month. Once whoever purchases the property will do what they want to do with it. But we're looking to level and put it up for sale. It's a big load carrying this empty house. And and as I say, old memories. So once this is down and, and, you know, they can move on. This is where things start. Not start, but continue to get weird. (laughs) Yeah, keep being weird. CTV was interviewing neighbors in the community about the demolition of the house when they uncovered a potential key piece of evidence. A woman who chose to remain anonymous said she gave police surveillance video that showed a car sitting in the Sherman's driveway on December 14, 2017, a day before their bodies were found and a day after the couple was last seen alive. She said a man was seen, quote, sitting in his car for up to 15 minutes, then going inside. Between 9-11 a.m. and 10-16 a.m., The man walked from a four-door sedan parked in front of the Sherman's home, appears to enter the Sherman house through the front door, and comes back outside. He does this three times for a total of 29 minutes inside the Sherman home before driving off. The police said they couldn't answer any questions since it's still an active investigation, but they did say they knew who the person was and had already interviewed them. During the STARS investigation, they discovered that police hadn't looked at this surveillance nor any of the surveillance from Apotex for at least six weeks after the murders which, again, is when they decided it was a homicide. The police didn't offer any explanation for this, again, citing it was an active investigation. Even though the police say they had interviewed the man who went into the home, 
Brian Greenspan, the family attorney, said the private investigation team had a copy of the footage and it was inconclusive due to the quality. They could not tell who the man was because the footage was super grainy. So so weird. I just, you know, all these different stories. And I, I know the police definitely did say that they knew who the person was and they've interviewed him. Yeah. But Well, it seems like as this goes on, there's some tension between the private investigators and yeah. the Toronto police. You'd think, yeah, I don't know. So as another thing, in May 2019, it emerged that a strange 911 call had been made from Old Colony Road at the same time the Shermans were likely dying. On Thursday, December 14, 2017, at around 9.45 a.m., a uniformed police officer visited a house on the Sherman Street. The homeowner and house number have not been made public, but it's thought the house was around 10 doors away from the Shermans. The police officer asked the homeowner if someone in the residence had called 911. The officer did not share much information with the owner, but said they believed a call came from the owner's home. They didn't specify if it came from a cell phone or a landline. They weren't specific about what time the call was made. When the homeowner saw the news the next day of the Sherman's death, they reported the 911 call in police visit. The homeowner told the star, It was just too much of a coincidence, and I thought police should know. That Friday night at the police division, the homeowner was told, by police, that maybe some wires were crossed. And that's why it appeared the 911 call had been made from her home. The homeowner said they made light of it and they said they didn't think it was anything that was relevant. The owners took it upon themselves to check with phone providers and they said there was no evidence of a glitch, cross wires, or any records that a 911 call had come from within their home. The homeowner said, it left me feeling really weird that police would think there was an emergency call coming from me. It just seemed too much of a coincidence. Very strange coincidence, really. There's, a, there's just like a lot of weird little things. They're dying. Some guy's coming in and out of their house. Someone's calling 911. Yeah. Yeah. This unusual occurrence has raised many questions. Did the police somehow visit the wrong home? Did the 911 call come from a cell phone and police were unable to trace it? Could the call have really come from the Sherman property at 50 Old Colony Road? Will we ever know? <laughs> Another theory that has emerged relates to the unidentified car and man I mentioned before. Could this man have possibly been a police officer in an unmarked car who was also checking on the 911 call? The man was seen at the Sherman residence between 9-11 and 10-16 on the same morning that a police officer visited the Sherman's neighbors at 9-45. So this is all happening at the same time. The Star approached Toronto police for comment about the possible correlation between the two events and the Director of Communications, Alison Sparks, gave the following response. And it's a response we all know. <laughs> As for your questions, we're unable to comment on any aspects of open, ongoing investigations. And like I said before, Police Chief Mark Saunders did say that they know who this person was and they interviewed him. But there was a discrepancy with what the private, investors, private investigator said because they couldn't recognize who the person was. Which I could think... credit that police theory. Yeah, but then what would a police officer really go in and out of the house? I don't think so either. And but then uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess and yeah, I don't know. I was gonna <laughs> say, like, did he actually go into the house or did he just like was the front door unlocked and he kind of stood in there, like, you know, in and the doorway? Like, Hello. Yeah, like is anyone there? And um so that that would kind of make sense if it was a police no, officer. But it said that he went in three times for like 15 minutes at a time yes yeah, so that's that's the other thing like it's 
he surely just wouldn't have stood there calling out for 15 minutes at a time. Super weird. I wonder if this person, you know, obviously we don't know, but did this person access the lockbox? There's a lot of things that it's mm. just kind of very vague. Yeah. Could have been a real estate person, could have been, That's you true. know, it's a massive house. I'm sure they had lots of people who do maintenance there. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are going in and out of the house. Yeah. So if what the police chief said is true and that they do know who the person is, just why can't they tell us? We just want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to April 2019. There was a court hearing and Detective Dennis Yim, who was at this point the only full-time officer assigned to the Sherman case, said that the police had a working theory of what had happened to Honey and Barry and that one person they had wanted to speak with was refusing to speak with them. So does that mean he was full-time on the case? Or he, I'm not sure. Like, I'm assuming that's what it means, like, I or that he was just a full-time officer in the force so he could work on it, you know, all the time if he needed to. I feel like it must be full time on the case. But that's a lot. Like that's nearly eighteen months. Yeah, maybe after not. The thing. I don't know. Still, I don't know. But like, it's interesting. If it is, it's still a long. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not. But it seems to me like it's a long time to still have one person only working on that case. Yeah. But I guess it is probably one of the most high profile ones that they've dealt with in the last few years. Here's a clip from Kevin Donovan again, the chief investigative reporter from the star speaking to ctv news about the court hearing and giving a few updates on the case at this time what more can you tell us about this working theory uh well we don't know that much uh this came out during the toronto star's application to have uh, uh well over a thousand pages of search warrant uh, and production order documents unsealed uh and when i was asking questions of the police officer trying to find out what was in them uh he came out with this uh, what to me was quite a astounding piece of new information that they have a working theory and an idea of what went on. Uh, I pressed him and said, can you tell me, uh, is there a suspect or a person of interest? And at that point, uh, the the judge uh, uh, cut him off uh, because to reveal that would reveal information that is in the documents that are under seal. Uh, we also learned that uh, there is at least one person that the police have been asking to speak to who has refused. Uh, again, no details on that, but one speculation I have is that that is, is indeed a, a suspect, somebody they want to ask questions who would have material information, uh, uh, perhaps be even the person involved, and that person's not speaking. And we also learned that, that there are a small number of people that the police simply cannot locate, and it appears they may have left the country. So on December 16th, 2019, two years after their deaths, Toronto police and the Sherman family released a joint statement to announce the private investigation led by the family's lawyer, Brian Greenspan, was now closed. Which is another kind of weird thing. At a news conference, Inspector Hank Idzinga, the head of the Toronto Police Homicide Unit, spoke to the media. It's a very unique situation. Um, we've seen private investigators doing some overlapping work in, in cases in the past, but not a dedicated team like we dealt with in this case. There's been some over overlap between the tips we've received and the tips the private investigative team received, and we'd like those tips directly to us and avoid that um, any potential editing of the tips. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of this investigation? What has held up? Solving this crime. Uh, the, sh the sheer volume of information 
is overwhelming. We're the gatherers of the information, and then we have to go through it all and, and decipher it. Seems like there was some sort of falling out between the family and Grind's brainspan. Brian brainspan. Seems like there was some sort of fallout between Brian Greenspan and the family. And also Brian Greenspan and the Toronto PD. The family, who was initially very critical of police, was now fully on their team. So up to that date, evidence-wise, there was 38 judicial authorizations, which resulted in searches of residential and commercial properties, electronic devices, and the production of 73 individual records. 150 items were submitted to the Center of Forensic Sciences for testing. 243 witnesses were interviewed. Four terabytes of security video had been obtained. 205 tips were given directly to police from the public, and an additional 343 tips were given to police via the private investigation team. Still, the police were asking anyone with reliable information regarding the murders, no matter how inconsequential it may seem, to report it. The private tip line created by Brian Greenspan and the private investigators was now offline. I wonder why they took it offline. Sorry, that's just a query. So the majority believe that police botched this investigation because... Police believed it was a murder-suicide and only investigated that scenario initially. Kevin Donovan has been pushing to get the records related to the case unsealed. He told CTV News that documents he was able to obtain revealed police were only considering Honey a victim of murder for the first six weeks of the investigation, indicating they believed Barry killed Honey and then himself. Donovan said, Police decided it was murder-suicide and then they go down this tunnel. That's bad for an investigation and bad for investigators. You have to look at all suspects and all possible suspects in the first 48 hours. In his book, The Billionaire Murders, he documents that investigators waited months to collect DNA and fingerprints from people who had been in the home to rule them out as suspects, and some key people in the Sherman's lives weren't interviewed for weeks after the murders. As we mentioned earlier, he also revealed that police didn't look at any of the surveillance from Apotex or the neighborhood for those six weeks either. Donovan said, I think the police officers assigned to the case were good, but there probably weren't enough of them. So when the Sherman's bodies were discovered, the Toronto police were also in the midst of an investigation that eventually led to the arrest and conviction of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, which required a tremendous amount of police resources. <laughs> Bad timing for the Shermans. <laughs> the Shermans have no, no luck. Donovan also gave his opinion on the case after studying it for almost a year and a half. He believes the Sherman's killer was someone they knew and dismissed the idea of a professional hitman or a foreign spy being involved, which is a popular theory. He told CTV, I think it's quite likely that this was an attempt to have a conversation that went horribly wrong. And he noted that strangulation is a very personal way of killing someone. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's basically everything up to date. We're left with no real answers 2.5 years later. And the only thing we know that will be happening is the hearing we mentioned before this summer to discuss the sealing of the estate, which was already delayed from March due to coronavirus. Hmm. Very complex one, this one. Do you think police messed up this investigation? I do. Like I, I what you said before about um, I think it's Donovan, how he said, you need to look at all suspects and all possible suspects in the first 48 hours. I think that would have been impossible in this case. There's so many people who could have been involved or who could have had the motivation to do it. Mm -hmm. 
I, I do think obviously that their first mistake was that they just declared it a murder-suicide straight away. Yeah. Um, I do kind of understand why they thought that. And, you know, maybe there was other evidence that made them think that and we don't know about it, but it was very irresponsible investigating to declare it publicly straight away, I think. And also, obviously, they made a lot of mistakes. Like they didn't look at the CCTV for six weeks. They ignored the lady who said she had uh, info about Honey's Will. She, they ignored the lady with the CCTV, all those different things, which is very – it's unusual to me that they would do that. Yeah. And they've been so adamant. The police have been in all the media that I've seen that they haven't messed it up. You know, they're, like, basically trying to justify why – things went the way they did so I do think they messed it up I I suspect that the investigation to date you know after they finally declared it a double homicide has been thorough it sounds like it has been what do you think I think the same thing and just if they were focused on a murder-suicide situation I feel like there's probably DNA and other evidence in the home yep. that was missed and then destroyed that they don't have access to like they can't get that back because and I guess things like you know they said there's no sign of forced entry like a lot of the markers that you'd probably look for in a murder weren't there Mm -hmm. like a double murder weren't there but yeah it was definitely irresponsible of them to label it so quickly yeah I feel like this happens a lot though and I'm not even just talking about in Canada just generally like one case that comes to mind is the Maggie Long case and I know we've spoken about her the other week but how they said she was missing and put out missing person appeals and then she was in the burned out house that burnt down on the day she disappeared. Yeah, Maggie Long is another weird case with some similarities. I think sometimes they just take things on face value like this is what it looks like. And it must be hard because the public is always demanding some sort of answer to know what's going on and maybe they don't know at the time. Especially in this case, like when you see all the media, you know, the press conferences, there's heaps of people around. This was obviously a very high-profile case from the start. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting to me too that the family released a statement, I think it was like two days after they were found or something, asking the police to investigate properly. Mm -hmm. Why would they need to release a statement? Is it just because the police weren't taking them seriously? Maybe that was... I think it's because there was like some police source telling the media already that they thought it was a murder-suicide. So, And I did notice in the earlier, you know, press conferences they were cagey, but they, you know, they essentially did say that they didn't think foul play was involved and they weren't looking for anyone else. Yeah. So, yes, I do think they've messed it up. I feel like they have tried to recover it. And I think that they, it seems like, but I guess there has been no conviction either. So, well, like it was noted, they were dealing with, um, I don't know a ton about it, but I, I read a little bit about it about Brian MacArthur, the serial killer. Bruce MacArthur, yeah. Bruce MacArthur, <laughs> the serial yeah. killer, which I guess. Yeah. Probably took up a lot of their time. And I guess, you know, they are, it's a finite resource. They only have so many police officers that they can assign to one case. It, no matter how much money the Shermans had, they, they can't monopolize the entire police force. Yeah. And if you think it's a murder suicide versus a serial killer, where are you going to put your resources? Yeah. Um, what do you think of Carrie Winter? Because I think. I don't like I don't want to say I think he's involved for sure, but I think he's so weird and suspicious. Like and he's definitely very bitter. Like he has the motivation to want to do it. But then 
what was the motivation? Is it that he thought he was going to get maybe, or unless it was just a revenge thing, but maybe he thought he was going to get something in the estate if they were both dead? Well, it's like Kevin Donovan said to someone that he thought it was more of a personal crime and he said that he thought it was like a conversation gone wrong that probably had to do with money, which I could see, but I also feel like that'd be too easy. Somehow maybe related to this $500 million that Barry was going to give Honey as well. Yeah. Maybe that that seems like it was happening at the time. It's weird though if it's a personal thing, was there more than one person? Because how did he manage to strangle them both? Like, I, you know, I know there's ways it could happen. there's three siblings, the winter yeah, cousins. Yeah, <laughs> they work together. <laughs> you think, though, that if the lady had CCTV footage, she would also have CCTV footage of that night? That's what I was thinking, too. Like, so why was her camera haven't then? they seen anyone coming in or out? Unless that was the person. <laughs> And I guess what they could have done was they could have, say, strangled Barry and then Honey walked in. Like they weren't necessarily subduing two people and killing two people at once. So it could have happened one after the other separately. I guess they, the Dr. Chazon. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that he said that he thought they were tied up before they were hung. Yeah. He said the, the bindings on their wrists were from before they were hung. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like. I think. <laughs> yeah. Another weird thing, the FaceTime guy. Yeah, that's super weird to me. That's up there with the statues as being a weird coincidence. Yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe it's common that people don't want to be on FaceTime for whatever reason. Maybe it's a cultural thing, who knows. But it's very, very strange. But I do, as I said before, I do feel that that is something that could be easily looked into. Yeah, you would think. Hmm. I find it interesting, though, I think you mentioned that police officer or someone involved in the case that they had a strong idea of who yes. was the, like, main person of interest. It was and the last working full-time officer on the case that they had a working theory. Like, I've had a look, and obviously they've never named who that person is, but even online no one seems to know. There's, like, the main theories are Kerry and the cousins. And the other one I've seen mentioned a lot is that it was actually Jonathan Sherman who was their son. But That's I can't weird. find any reasoning for that. Like maybe he had an unstable relationship with him. I don't know. Like this is all just speculation, but that seems to be mentioned a lot online that people do suspect it was Jonathan or Jonathan um, facilitated it. Maybe just someone doesn't like Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because all the, you know, it's like sources close to the investigation say it's, you know, Jonathan Sherman. I'm like, but there's nothing to back this up. Like, who is just, the source? I could just <laughs> I could just go on and pretend I have a source and say this is who it is. So, but yeah, even though the police are saying that they have this one person who they who won't speak to them, well, see, that's interesting what to me. I was thinking because remember in that clip they were saying, you know, Carrie hasn't talked to the police yet, but he said he's going to go. But he said that three days <laughs> ago, and he still hasn't gone. Is he that person? Do they mention in the clip what? Um, polygraph questions he failed the only one that they showed in the clip was did barry ask you to kill honey and he said yes and they said that was a lie so i don't know if they kind of yeah why would barry ask someone who is in illegal battle with for years to kill his wife also why would he ask him because even carrie said 
oh, I can't kill somebody. He's like, no, but you know people. I'm sure Barry knows yeah. people too. He's a billionaire that works with He's got money. He knows people. He can find someone with his money to do it. Yeah. I just don't see that happening. Not that I no. have any I think knowledge Carrie of him. is just making up stuff. Like I think the stuff about Barry wanting to kill Honey, that's made up. Probably just um, wants the attention. Yeah. And like the pity party of Barry stole my money. I also kind of think that Kerry is just bitter. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know. I, like, I'm, I'm sure it could be him, but I like feel he like he just wants cool. people to know that he was fucked over. And he doesn't seem that intelligent either. So, no. like, and I don't know, maybe it's just dumb luck that no one's been caught for this already. But it seems like it was a little bit more um, thorough and planned than maybe what, Yeah, methodical than what Kerry would carry out. Yeah. I, I think I said before, but you have to, everyone has to like go watch the clip of him talking because he's just clearly like fake sobbing. We'll put it on our blog as with everything else, but it's just so ridiculous to watch because he's this older guy just acting ridiculous, really. He should hook up with Dr. Peter Hackett. <laughs> yes, that's what it makes you think of. And how he's just like, yeah, I want to hurt Barry. Uh, yeah. Such, such a drama queen. <laughs> I think it's funny. They, like, they can't be minors. I think it's funny none of, like, maybe if you look harder, but it's always just, like, Carrie Winter and his three siblings. Like, these yeah. other siblings He's are like, I don't want anything to do with this, but if you win money, fine. <laughs> the other event, I guess, that I found really interesting is the man who was seen on CCTV going in and out of the house. I would love to know more about that. Also, in conjunction with the 911 call yeah, at the same so time. All ha- what are the odds that all this was happening at the same time in the same neighbourhood, you know, a few doors apart, and that they were also either dead or just like had just been killed or were dying? I feel like the 911 call had to have been related. It had to have been. They just couldn't figure it out. And police, like, they're not going to admit and be like, oh, we went to the wrong house. Yeah. Like, and they are like they are obviously being very cagey about it, and I'm sure now they have Honey and Barry's phone records because the neighbor has said that the 911 call definitely didn't come from their property. So I'm sure that they know maybe now. And that the one thing that makes me think maybe it was a policeman is that the police have said they know who it is. But then would they also question a policeman? And also, why would there be two different police officers? Well, I mean, I guess they could go together, but one has an unmarked car and isn't dressed as a police officer and one is. And I also don't think a police officer would go in and out of the house three times for, for 15 you know, minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, that makes me think it wasn't a police officer. I would, yeah, I would love to know more about that. But also say it was just like a friend or something stopping by to see if they were home. Like their house is so big where yeah. maybe he just like peeked in, was like, it's weird though. Maybe, like, maybe if you went in once, you could be like, okay, well, he, you know, poked his head in. But then why is he going in three times? And what is he doing in there for that yeah, amount of for time? For that time. Like, if I stopped at my friend's house to see if they were home, like, I was just in the neighborhood, and I wouldn't open the door, but say I did, I would just be like, hey. Yeah. And if no one was like, there, I wouldn't be there. like, let me wait 15 minutes just in case. <laughs> and go back <laughs> could, to my yeah, car you, and do if, it again. If you'd... We're trying to get in contact with them. You'd probably go and sit in your car and wait and see if they text you back or ring you back or whatever. But yeah, this was also, it's not like this was years ago. There were cell phones. Like, why isn't this person yeah. just, or maybe he was calling them and they weren't answering because they were, like, it could be something like that, I guess. Like, I don't know. 
The only thing that makes that believable is the house is so huge that you wouldn't necessarily just like run into them. And they said it didn't look like there was any forced entry into the home. So there might have been no signs. But then you have the other side of why did he go in three times in and out? Yeah. So could that have been the killer? I think it could have been. Yeah, I don't know. I I just, I think that. But then they're also saying that they know they think they know who the person of interest is. So, and but then yeah, the lawyer then that saying they can't speak see to them. It. Yeah, I I don't think it was the killer. I think it was either a policeman or someone else there for some other reason. Maybe a realtor. Maybe a true the know, realtor. someone else to do to do with the house. But then if it if it is the realtor, I don't know why they just wouldn't have said that, or why they wouldn't have just called. <sighs> and the, yeah, and the thing is, if it was a realtor. It would also explain how he got into the house if he had the lockbox access. True. They never said if the front door was just open or if, like, if you, I mean, they did say it was a shitty video, but I feel like you could tell if someone's just opening a door versus if someone's unlocking a door and then opening it. And I guess, you know, if it was real to maybe he needed to take some measurements or some photos or I don't know, something like that. So that would kind of make sense. True. It could have been something prearranged with um, Honey yep. and Barry and... He just assumed they were Barry didn't have secretaries or, you know, assistants. So it could have just been arranged directly with them and nobody know, you know, the public don't know. Yeah. And he just assumed they weren't there, but they were just dead in their indoor pool. Yeah. And maybe he only needed to go into the kitchen or to one room and he, like, it was a very big house. If he was there (laughs) for 20 minutes or 29 minutes or whatever it was, he probably wouldn't have gone into every single room in the house. That would make sense to me. Mm -hmm. It's just weird that the 911 call and the police, and all that happened at the same time. So weird. Like, I don't even have a a theory, really, because it's just so strange. I wish we knew more, which, you know, obviously I know it's an investigation, so we won't, but I wish we knew more about Honey's final movements. Like, I know she left Apotex before Barry, mm-hmm. but I'd love to know, like, when her last texts or calls and all that type and of stuff And how she said were. she was dealing with stuff the day before. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing that makes you think maybe it was family related or someone they knew, like maybe she was dealing with some drama with them yeah. like the day before or something was brewing. And I then this kind of happened. A family, you know, personal issue. I think it was definitely targeted and it was definitely someone close to them. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was just some random who turned up and, you know, decided to no, carry like- out a murder that night. Also, a hitman is a popular theory. Mm. I don't know why. And I know that hitman, hitman, <laughs> I know that hitmen exist. And yeah, whenever I hear the theory, oh, it was a hitman, I'm like, no, it wasn't. Like, it just, <laughs> it just seems so stupid to me. And yeah, maybe I'll get hate for that because it does happen. But I don't, it just like seems like a movie plot. Like, and is a hitman going to spend time staging the scene and posing the bodies? And he, if, a hit, if it was a real hitman, shoot them in the head. And I remember reading that it said in here how like Barry talked about like how someone could just kill him. And, and he said, if someone wanted to shoot me, they could just shoot me when I leave Aptex like I do every yeah. single night. Yeah. It just seems like it's a lot of effort. It's, it does seem like it's a more personalized thing. Not that I know how hitmen behave, but I feel like they like <laughs> wouldn't like go into the house and like you said, stage the bodies, do all this stuff, no. leave their DNA everywhere. Any movie that be in and out where I see a hitman, it's just like one and done. <laughs> All our scientific research about hitmen. <laughs> My latest hitman experience was Tiger King. 
<laughs> but that's what they were going to do. They were going to just shoot her while she was riding her bike. And yep. they weren't going to break into her house and torture her and her Look, husband and tie them up. the last thing they wanted to do. Like it, would, it sounds like it would have taken, you know, just let's say at least an hour like mm-hmm. I agree. to kill them, pose them, whatever else. So I don't think any someone isn't just going to hang around for fun if they are doing it for money. They want, they're going to want to get in and out. I'm just interested in the reasoning behind mm. like things at the crime scene. Like, did they kill them first, then decide to hang them in a weird seated position, or is that how they killed them? Did he hang them from the pool bar, and that's just happened to be how they died? It's interesting to me that also Honey was the only one who had any actual like facial trauma. Yeah. Whereas Barry didn't. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they had to hit her, say, to subdue her and get her I there? I feel like or- it, it could tie into with how they said her phone was found in that unused bathroom and that yep. it seems like maybe she tried to get away and or like maybe they attacked Barry first and she heard it and she tried to run and hide and then they found her and kind of like beat her down and dragged her wherever. I wonder if that bathroom was on the same floor. I, I, it sounds like the bathroom was near the pool. Yeah. Like, so I'm assuming it was on the same floor. I wonder if they were but I wonder, on that floor or if they are brought I down. wonder if, say, for example, what might, what, you know, just playing out the scenario in my head is what might have happened is she was attacked when she got home from Apotex. So maybe they were waiting there and they hit her over the head as soon as she got out of the car, say, oh, maybe she, oh, yeah. you know, and then maybe they didn't need to do that to Barry because they, when he got home, they said, well, we've got honey, come yeah, with us. That would and make he didn't sense. fight yeah. it. But I don't know. Interesting. I didn't think of that, but that's believable. Mm, it's just interesting that she had trauma to me and he didn't. Why is that? Must be a reason for it. Yeah. And they did come home three hours apart at least. Yeah. I don't think I have much else to say about it. <laughs> I don't think so either. All right, so... That's really all the information we have about this case. I know it's kind of an unfulfilling ending because we're still wondering what happened, but hopefully we'll find out some more information this summer. We'll definitely do an update on that. If you want to check out any of the sources that we talked about, the articles, the videos, the pictures, we will be putting up a blog post on this case at truecrimesociety.com. If you're not part of our Facebook group, you should join that. Hopefully you're already a member, but you could just search True Crime Society on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Those are all the social medias we have, so don't look anywhere else. We don't have a TikTok. We don't (laughs) want a TikTok. Kendall might get on that. (laughs) Oh, Kendall. Kendall, make a TikTok. (laughs) She's into TikTok. But anyways, follow us on everything. Subscribe, rate, review. If you like the podcast, please leave us a good review. It's really encouraging to us and it makes us want to keep doing it. All right. Well, see you next crime. See you next time. Bye. Bye.